السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونؤمن به ونتوكل عليه ونعوذ بالله من شرور أنفسنا ومن سيئات أعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلله فلا هادي له ونشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له ونشهد أن محمدا عبده ورسوله صلى الله تعالى عليه وعلى آله وصحبه وبارك وسلم تسليما كثيرا كثيرا أما بعد فعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم إن الله وملائكته يصلون على النبي يا أيها الذين آمنوا صلوا عليه وسلم تسليما اللهم صل على محمد وعلى آل محمد كما صليت على إبراهيم وعلى آل إبراهيم إنك حميد مجيد اللهم بارك على محمد وعلى آل محمد كما باركت على إبراهيم وعلى آل إبراهيم إنك حميد مجيد Respected listeners, we gather for the third part of our study of Surah Al-Hujarat So far in the past two weeks, we have completed five verses in which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala warns believers against advancing before Allah and his messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam trying to outdo them, surpass them, supersede them, outpace them in any way. Allah also reminds believers of the position of the Messenger and the manner in which one should conduct oneself even in speech before the Messenger and this level of respect and reverence and courtesy displayed to the Messenger Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam the ulama have declared is no different after his life on earth as it was during his life. Having covered these issues so far the surah now moves on to a totally different topic. As you may recall in the beginning I explained that one of the unique features of Surah Al-Hujarat is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala teaches the believers many etiquettes, many rules of conduct, personal, social, religious, and the society of Medina was based on some of these rules and more but a lot of the rules of Surah Al-Hujarat were the principles of Medinan society and part of them was recognition of the position of Allah and his messenger sallallahu alayhi wasallam and the correct conduct in respect of Allah and his messenger sallallahu alayhi wasallam Another principle was etiquettes of behavior and treatment 
of one another. Not just Allah and his messenger sallallahu alayhi wasallam, but fellow Muslims, fellow human beings. No society can thrive properly and successfully in the long term unless these rules are established. And the rule which we are about to discuss now and learn of is so vital and yet it is so neglected almost universally. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says and this is the sixth verse Ya ayyuhalladheena amanu in ja'akum fasiqun binaba'in fatabayyanu an tusibu qawmun mijahalatin fatusbihu ala ma fa'antum nadimeen O believers if a sinful person comes to you with some news, then ascertain the facts, inquire, inquire, lest you inflict suffering on a people in ignorance. And then you become remorseful over what you have done. There are some narrations that suggest that during the time of the Prophet ﷺ, he was informed about a certain people's withholding of their zakah and he was told in the presence of the other companions that certain such a group of people have withheld their zakah and sought to harm me your messenger now if I can mention the narration in some detail It's mentioned that Al-Walid ibn Uqbah, one of the companions, he was sent by the Messenger وسلم, to Banu Mustaliq in order to collect their zakah. Banu Mustaliq had every intention of paying their zakah, but they were waiting for the collector to arrive himself on behalf of the messenger sallallahu at, at a given time when the collector had not arrived at that time Banu Mustaliq feared that the Prophet sallallahu was displeased with them and as a result had refused to send the collector so Banu Mustaliq the leaders themselves got together and as a band, as a large group, they set forth to come and meet the Messenger وسلم, himself, fearing that the Prophet وسلم, had deliberately not sent his collector. There was some delay. 
Al-Walid ibn Uqba, he learned that a large armed band of the Banu Mustaliq had come out in his direction. He feared that they had become rebellious and were intent on refusing to pay the zakah and were actually seeking to harm him. So he then came and informed the Messenger وسلم, of his fears. And do remember, he, he never faced them directly. He was told of this. So he relied on a report that the Banu Mustaliq had come out in force. They were intent on not paying the zakah and also on harming him. So he hurriedly turned around and made his way to the Messenger وسلم, and he informed the Prophet وسلم, in the presence of the companions of what he believed based on a report which he had received. So he gave the Prophet وسلم, a report based on a report which he had heard. The Sahaba عنهم, were incensed. Because at the time of the Prophet ﷺ, refusal to pay zakah, withholding of the zakah, was an act of rebellion. They were part of the state, and they were under the protection of the state. And their refusal to pay zakah to the Prophet ﷺ was an act of rebellion, an act of defiance, and a message that we no longer recognize your authority. So the Sahaba relying on these reports were of the opinion that the Prophet should march against Banu Mustariq and to quell this rebellion. Especially since they had come out in force, the Prophet ﷺ advised caution, prudence, <clears throat> and patience. As a result of which, not soon, not long thereafter, Banu Mustaliq arrived in Medina. And when they came, the Prophet ﷺ questioned them and said to them, Did you intend to kill my? ambassador and uh, zakah collector. Did you refuse to pay zakah? Were you intent on rebellion? So the leaders of Banu Mustaliq pleaded with the Messenger وسلم, and told him that, Ya Rasulullah, we never sought your collector. He never came to us. We never even got to see him. And not only that, we have come out. We had already come out to you fearing ourselves that you and Allah were displeased with us and that you had withheld your collector and not sent him to us. As a result of this clarification on the part of Banu Mustaliq, also as a result of the Prophet wasallam's prudence and caution and patience and deliberation in this matter, and as a result of the Prophet ﷺ declining to act 
on the opinion and the advice of the some of the Sahaba radiyallahu anhum, the arms should be taken up against Banu Mustaliq and their rebellion quashed. Bloodshed was avoided and otherwise it would have great trouble would have would have ensued. Now this was the backdrop to the revelation of this verse. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Ya ayyuhalladheena amanu in ja'akum fa'asakum binaba. O believers, if a sinful person comes to you with some news, fatabayyin, then inquire, verify, ascertain, and tusibu qawman bijahala, lest you inflict pain on a people in ignorance, fatusbihu ala ma fa'altum nadimeen, and then you become regretful, remorseful over what you have done. So this was the backdrop to the revelation. Now, or to the verse. Now, a few things we need to note about this verse in relation to this incident. The Sahabi radiyallahu anhu, his name was Walid ibn Uqbat ibn, ibn, ibn Abi Mu'ayt. He was actually the son of Uqbat ibn Abi Mu'ayt. And as I've mentioned many times, it's remarkable that during the time of the Prophet wasallam, some of his greatest opponents, their family members, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all embraced Islam. And this was true for many of the latest Sahaba radiyallahu anhum. Umayyud ibn Khalaf, his son, Safwan ibn Ubayyah, Abu Jahl, his son Ikrimah, Al-Walid ibn al-Mughira, his son Khalid ibn al-Walid, and many others. So the Sanadid, the leaders of the Quraysh, their children eventually became Muslim. Abu Sufyan, although he embraced Islam later, even during the time that he refused to embrace Islam, his own daughter, Ramla, radiyallahu anha, whose kunya was Umm Habiba, and who then married, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam herself. That is another example. Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul, the leader of the hypocrites in Medina. It's related that his wife, as well as his son, famously, everyone knows about his son Abdullah, uh, the same name as his father Abdullah, the son of Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul. He, he was famously a Muslim, but his sister and his mother other family members had also embraced Islam and were very sincere in their Islam. Uqbat ibn Abi Mu'ayt was another individual who was, who was killed in the earlier years. And he was one of those rogues who harmed and hurt the Messenger wasallam repeatedly. He's the one who on one occasion choked the Prophet wasallam in the haram. He's the same one, Uqbat ibn Abi Mu'ayt, who, when Abu Jahl said that, who will go and collect the amniotic sac and the afterbirth of a she-camel, which has just recently given birth, and dump this filth on the back of Muhammad whilst he's in prostration in the haram. So Abu Jahl made that call, and Ashq al-Qawm, the, the bitterest and the 
the most unfortunate of the people, the most wicked of the people, rose, as Abdullah ibn Mas'ud anhu says in the hadith, the, the most wicked of the people rose and fetched that amniotic sack and the afterbirth. And whilst the Prophet was in prostration, he came and dumped it on his noble back. And such was the weight of the filth that it prevented the Messenger from rising again. And who was that Ashq al-Qawm, the wickedest of the people? It was none other than Uqbat ibn Abi Mu'ayt. So this individual was responsible for choking the Prophet throttling him for dumping filth on his noble back and mocking the Messenger Yet remarkably, his daughter was someone who embraced Islam and before the conquest of Mecca, she is the one who individually undertook that great journey from Mecca to Medina. And she was a young virgin, unmarried, leaving her father's home she, and leaving her family home. Her father was, al- was already dead, but leaving the family home, she made her way to Medina in order to embrace Islam and submit to the Messenger wasallam. And she is the first woman whom the Messenger wasallam tested as, a, as per the procedure mentioned in uh, Surah Al-Mumtahina. So her brother at the time was not a Muslim, Al-Walid, but he also embraced Islam in the eighth year of Hijrah, Al-Walid ibn Uqba. Now, this is Al-Walid ibn Uqba. According to some narrations, this whole incident was related to Al-Walid ibn Uqba. Anyway, Al-Walid ibn Uqba, the verse says, إِنْ جَاءَكُمْ فَاسِقٌ If a sinful person comes to you with some news. So, does this mean that Al-Walid ibn Uqba was sinful? And the verse is specifically referring to him? No. Even though this was the backdrop to the revelation of the verse, the wording of the verse is more general. And the word fasiq is not in reference to Al-Walid ibn Uqba. And this is self-evident for a number of reasons. Because Al-Walid ibn Uqba did not lie, he received a report. And based on that report, he turned around and informed the Messenger wasallam of the same report. And the reason why he failed to go further and collect the zakah. If, and there was no malicious, malicious intention on his part, there was no desire to mislead, he was not lying, he was genuine and sincere in what he believed to be true and what he conveyed to the Prophet If there was any malice on his part, if there was any deception or lying or treachery or dishonesty on his part, the Prophet would surely have taken some action would have reprimanded him, at least would have rebuked him. But there is no report of the Prophet ﷺ correcting him. Because he simply reported back to the Prophet ﷺ what he had been told. And this is why the Prophet ﷺ did not reprimand him or rebuke him in any way. And not only that, nor did the Sahaba hold this against him. Not only that, but after the time of the Prophet 
ابو بکر صدیق رضی اللہ عنہ خلیفہ رسول اللہ صلی اللہ علیہ وسلم عمر بن الخطاب رضی اللہ عنہ امیر المؤمنین and even Uthman ibn Affan after both of them they all continue to trust Al-Walid ibn Uqbah and appoint him to positions of authority so all of this shows that Al-Walid ibn Uqbah was never regarded as being dishonest or untrustworthy in any way therefore the word fasiq sinful person in the verse does not refer to Al-Walid ibn Uqbah so why is the verse, why is the word mentioned then, fasiq? I'll explain this when, uh, in a moment when I explain the wider meaning of the verse as it's applicable to us. Overall, the Sahaba radiallahu anhum are being told, we the believers are being told, that, Ya ayyuhalladheena amanu, O believers, in ja'akum fasiqum binaba, if a sinful person comes to you with some news, فَتَبَيَّنُوا then ascertain the truth, verify the facts, make your inquiries. Now, does this mean, does this mean that we are only to inquire, make inquiries, verify the facts, ascertain the truth, if we believe the person to be sinful, who is reporting to us? No, it doesn't mean that. So why does Allah mention the word fasiq? A lot of it is to do with ilmul balagha, ilmul ma'ani, rhetoric and Arabic eloquence. And I won't go into those details. But suffice to say that normally, normally, people who lie and who provide false information are sinful individuals, those who are, are malicious. So, more often, it is sinful people, wicked people, unscrupulous people, malicious individuals who lie, who convey false reports, who provide false information in order to deceive and mislead and in order to inflict harm on people directly or indirectly. So, this is most often the case, but not always the case. When a person provides false information intentionally, then the person is dishonest, untrustworthy, untruthful, a liar, and malicious, and therefore sinful and wicked. However, at times, someone may inadvertently provide inaccurate information, though it's not their intention. So there is a clear difference between the two. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is warning us of both. And because most often this kind of harmful, malicious falsehood, false information, is normally provided by sinful, wicked people, this is why it's mentioned here. So the clause, there's obviously a clause here, isn't there? The clause is, if a sinful person comes to you with some news. So there's a clause, it's qualified, that if a sinful person comes to you, then verify the facts, ascertain the truth. In Arabic, this is known as qaydun, uh, well, it's a clause, it's a conditional clause. 
But it's a clause, isn't it? If a person comes to you. But in Arabic, this is known as قَيْدٌ اتفاقيٌ أو اشتراطي. Is the clause coincidental or is it conditional? Is the clause coincidental or is it conditional? If it's conditional, that means only if a sinful person comes to you should you verify the facts, ascertain the truth, make inquiries. But if it's coincidental, then that means no. In this context, although Allah mentions if a sinful person comes to you, the clause if is not conditional, it's merely coincidental. Therefore, whether the person is sinful or not sinful, you should still verify the facts. You should still ascertain the truth. So, this is what I would like to say about the word fasiq, sinful person. It doesn't refer to Al-Walid ibn Uqbah, who was a companion and a sahabi. And nor is it a conditional clause that if a sinful person comes to you, only then should you verify the facts. Rather, it's coincidental. It's mentioned because most often this is the case. A sinful person is the one who normally provides false information. But if even a sincere, blameless individual inadvertently and unwittingly provides false information, even then you have to verify the facts. You have to ascertain the truth, as happened in this case. Al-Walid ibn Uqbah radiyallahu when he told the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam that Banu Mustaliq are refusing to pay the zakah and have come out in arms and they were intent on uh, attacking me. He genuinely and sincerely believed that to be true because of the reports that he had received. And his fear led him to believe that. So that's what he shared with the Prophet ﷺ. The Sahaba ﷺ took his report at face value, since they trusted him and believed him, just as he took the report that was given to him at face value. But he in no way was malicious or misleading in his reporting to the Prophet ﷺ. Having clarified that, the moral of this verse, the lesson we gain is... فَتَبَيَّنُوا Ascertain the truth, verify the facts. Now, this is vital. News. Allah says بِنَبَأْ And نَبَأْ means news. إِنْ جَاءَكُمْ فَاسِقٌ بِنَبَأْ If a sinful person comes to you with any news, بِنَبَأْ With any news. That means any report that we receive, any news that we receive, we must make inquiries Verify the facts and ascertain the truth. Now, does this mean, again, another question, does this mean that, oh, we have to make inquiries about every single thing? We have to verify the facts in every single report? No, it doesn't mean that either. So how do we, how do we draw a distinction? Many of you will recall Hadith al-Ifq the story of the great lie, the hadith from Bukhari, which we covered in uh, many parts, related by Umm al-Mu'mineen Aisha radiyallahu anha about her trial and ordeal when she was falsely accused of uh, a great sin. There were many lessons to be learned 
from that whole story, which is also referenced in the Holy Quran, Surah An-Nur, with the with the with the verses beginning with the section beginning with the verse Inna Ladina Jau Bil Ifki Usbatum Minkum La Tahsabu Sharlakum. That indeed those who brought the great calumny, who brought this great lie, they were a party amongst you. So the section of Surah An-Nur covers that whole topic and we studied the whole of uh, Hadith Al-Ifq from Sahih Al-Bukhari some time ago. So you may recall then that I spoke about this in some detail. Coming back to this verse, we receive news all the time, especially in this day and age. And Muslims have been told by Allah and His Rasul Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam to be very careful, to be mindful of what they hear, what they receive, what they believe, and what they repeat and pass on to others. In a hadith later by a Muslim in his Sahih, and by others, from Abu Hurairah radiallahu an Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam says, كَفَى بِالْمَرْءِ كَذِبًا أَنْ يُحَدِّثَ بِكُلِّ مَا سَمِعَ It is sufficient for a man to be a liar, that he repeats everything that he hears. Simple. A man doesn't have to be an intentional liar. But it is sufficient for a man to end up lying and to become a liar that he simply repeats whatever he hears. Now in a day we hear a hundred things. Ten of them might be truths. Twenty of them might be misconceptions, misunderstandings. Twenty of them might be exaggerations and fifty of them will be outright lies. If a person repeats every single one of them, he will end up conveying, repeating fifty lies, twenty exaggerations, twenty misunderstandings and only ten truths. So for a man to be a liar, it is sufficient that he repeats everything that he hears. This is a hadith of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Now we receive so much information, so much news, gossip, whispers, telephone calls, text messages, messages through social media, instant messaging, people forwarding things, people forwarding things all the time. Sometimes it's frivolous, sometimes it's meaningless, sometimes it's trivial, sometimes it's serious. Warnings, which nobody bothers checking, and if somebody did, they'd realise that this warning was actually issued seven years ago by some authority, and is still being circulated right now. Falsehoods. And even before the advent of social media and instant messaging and communication, in normal society, what we would hear in person from people, that in itself was bad enough. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala references this throughout the Qur'an in more than one place. We hear things all the time. And much of it is gossip, innuendo, insinuations, 
exaggerations, misconstructions, misconceptions, and misunderstandings, and only part of it is truth. And we have to be very careful, especially when this affects other people's lives, livelihoods, their honour, their dignity. When it comes to rumours, gossip, people love salacious gossip, salacious gossip. And yet it is so harmful, so detrimental. In fact, many of the principles of journalism are opposed in the Qur'an. Many of the basics of journalism are opposed in the Qur'an. Some of the basics of journalism are actually advocated in the Qur'an, but some of them are contradicted and frowned upon. Not everything which is in the public, not everything which interests the public is in the public interest. Just because something interests us, no matter who it may be in relation to, it's not in our interest to know. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala teaches us in the Qur'an, and so does the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam in the hadith, that we should disregard it because it doesn't concern us. A perfect example. Umm al-Mu'mineen Aisha radiyallahu anha, was she a private individual? Was she just any normal person? Or was she a public figure? Without doubt, she was a public figure. She was the most notable and prominent wife of the Prophet ﷺ, who was the leader of the people. He was a leader of the state. He was a leader of the people, the leader of Medina. He was their messenger, their prophet, whose every word, whose every utterance, whose every judgment was held in esteem by the people, whose every teaching mattered to them, whose every utterance concerned them and was of interest to them. And this was his most prominent, most notable wife. His pri- her private life had an impact on his private life. His private life had an impact on his public life. And he was the messenger of Allah. He was their guide, their mentor, their prophet, their leader, their spiritual leader. Their conduit and their means of communication with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So this was his wife, Umm Mu'mineen Aisha radiyallahu anha. Her life was very public. When she was falsely accused of a great sin, one could argue, by today's standards, by our standards, that this should have concerned every individual in Medina. And yet, when word spread, people spoke about it. How did Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala respond? Did Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala say? Of course, the believers weren't to accept whatever was said about her. But did the, were the believers told that, oh believers, 
you shouldn't have just accepted what was being said. Rather, you should have reserved judgment, you should have withheld judgment, and then you should have made inquiries, you should have ascertained the truth, you should have verified the facts. Just as Allah says here, O believers, if a sinful person comes to you, and as I said, the clause, if a sinful person comes to you, is coincidental rather than conditional. That means if anyone comes to you, with some news, then ascertain the truth, verify the facts, make inquiries. According to this verse, the Sahaba should have withheld judgment, reserved judgment, and then made inquiries, verify the facts, ascertain the truth, because this concerned them. Umm al-Mu'mineen Aisha radiyallahu anha was a public figure. She was a wife of the most public figure. Is that what the Sahaba radiyallahu anhum were told to do? No. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, in Surah An-Nur, in that section which deals with that whole incident, لَوْلَا Why wasn't it? That when you heard this about Aisha radiallahu anha, why wasn't it that that believing men and believing women thought good of themselves? And why didn't they say that this is a clear lie? And then later, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala continues a few verses later, وَلَوْلَا إِذْ سَمِعْتُمُونَ And why wasn't it that when you heard this, i.e. this whole if, this great lie about Aisha radiallahu anha, قُلْتُمْ Why wasn't it that you said, مَا يَكُونَ لَنَا أَن نَتَكَلَّمَ بِهَذَا سُبْحَانَكَ هَذَا بُخْتَانٌ عَظِيمٌ That it is not even lawful for us to discuss this. It is not even permissible for us to speak of this. Hallowed be your name, O Allah. This is a great allegation. This is a great calumny. That's what the Quran teaches us. Which is that even though she is a public figure, even though she is the wife of a public figure, she is the wife of Rasulullah. And even though such a major allegation has been made about her, of disloyalty, of infidelity, which impacts on the life, on the character, on the person, on the well-being, on the household, on the family of your noble messenger and leader, sallallahu alayhi wasallam. still, let alone you making inquiries about this, let alone you speaking of it, let alone you repeating it, let alone you trying to verify the facts and ascertain the truth relating to it, it wasn't even permissible for you to discuss it, to repeat it. And not only that, it wasn't even permissible for you, let alone to speak of it, to even think about it. And if you were to think about it, the only thought you should have would have been about yourselves, that lawla id sami'tum, why wasn't it that when you heard this, you said... Why wasn't it that when you heard this, believing men and believing women thought good of themselves? Now what does that mean, believing men and believing women thought good of themselves? Even before the revelation of the verse, the Sahaba, more than one, already demonstrated this. 
One of them was Abu Ayyub al-Ansari radiyallahu Abu Ayyub al-Ansari, this was even before the revelation of the verse. Abu Ayyub al-Ansari radiyallahu the first host of the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wasallam. He was with his wife, Umm Ayyub radiyallahu anha. And Umm Ayyub casually, as happens, said to him, Have you heard about Aisha and Mistah? And she repeated the rumor. So Abu Ayyub al-Ansari radiyallahu said to her, said to his wife, Would you do this? Would you ever be guilty of the allegation which is being raised against Aisha radiallahu anha? So she instantly remonstrated and took offense. And she pleaded her innocence and remonstrated that how could such a thing be said of her by her own husband? So Abu Ayyub al-Ansari radiallahu anhu's one simple sentence is a lesson for the whole ummah till yawm al-qiyamah. He said to Umm Ayyub, she, she casually in a family setting, like a wife, as a wife talking to her husband, she casually said, oh, have you heard about Aisha? And what's being said of her? So Abu Ayyub al-Ansari radiallahu looked at her and said, would you do that? So she remonstrated and pleaded her innocence and was obviously taken aback. And Abu Ayyub al-Ansari radiyallahu anh simply said to her, فَعَائِشَةُ خَيْرٌ مِّنْكِ So Aisha is far better than you. If you cannot believe such a thing to be true about yourself, then how can you believe it to be true about Aisha when she is far, far better than you? <coughs> And this is why Allah says later, and it's also related that other Sahaba radiallahu anhum said the same. Imagine, these were those noble souls whose hearts and minds were so molded in the way of Allah and His Messenger sallallahu alayhi wasallam that what Allah revealed as a lesson, as a warning, as an instruction for the whole of mankind later, these Sahaba radiallahu anhum had already enacted it before the revelation of the Qur'an. More than one Sahabi. So this is the meaning of If you read the verse, it doesn't seem to make sense apparently. Why wasn't it that when you heard this, believing men and believing women did not think good of themselves? What's that supposed to mean? This is it. That whenever we hear some news about someone, far from going out to investigate and to research and to verify the facts, People think that, oh, it's okay to repeat. No, it's not okay to repeat. So then some people think we are better than that. The Qur'an tells us that we shouldn't repeat allegations and lies and falsehood and calumny and gossip. So we regard ourselves as being far better and greater than that. So they then climb to a higher level. And the higher level is... Now, the Qur'an doesn't, the Qur'an tells us we have to verify the facts, we have to ascertain the truth, we have to make inquiries, so people begin making inquiries. But they are wrong. The Qur'an does not even tell them that. The Qur'an tells them to go even further and say, it's not permissible for you to even make inquiries about this. In fact, 
you shouldn't be speaking about it, let alone asking questions. And in fact, let alone speak about it and discuss it, you shouldn't even be thinking about it. And if you do think about anything, think of yourselves. And if you think of yourselves, can you imagine such a thing to be true about yourself, your mother, your father, your dear and loved ones? If you cannot entertain such thoughts about yourself and your loved and dear ones, then banish such thoughts about someone else. Think of yourselves first. That's what the Qur'an tells us. So it's not permissible for us to repeat rumours, gossip, salacious gossip, and things that may interest us far from it. It doesn't matter what it's related to. Person's private life. Rather, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us, think good of yourselves, banish such, such thoughts, and do not even make inquiries. So when do we make inquiries? When is this verse applicable? Allah says, if someone comes to you with some news, then verify the truth, ascertain the facts, make you inquiries. So when should we make inquiries then? On the one hand, the Qur'an tells us it's not even permissible to discuss these things. So when should we make inquiries? As I explained then in my commentary of the Hadith of Bukhari of Umm al-Mu'mineen Aisha radiallahu anha's ordeal, it's very clear that only this verse is applicable only in those situations where it directly affects a person and they have to make a judgment. They have to make a decision. So before they make a decision, this is why Allah says, Antusibu at the end of the verse, Fatabiyan, ascertain the facts, verify the truth, lest you inflict harm on someone without realizing. And then you come to regret it afterwards. So this is only for those people who are in a position of authority or who are directly connected who have to make a judgment call and who have to make a decision. For example, I'll give you one example of Ummul Mu'mineen Aisha radiyallahu anha because it's very relevant and then we can judge everything else accordingly. In the case of Ummul Mu'mineen Aisha radiyallahu anha, people were gossiping. Allegations were being flung at her. Rumors were being spread. This was news. So, for everyone else, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's ruling was, it's not permissible for you to discuss it, to speak of it, to repeat it, to even think about it. The only people for for whom it was permissible to make any sort of inquiries further, to try and verify the facts and ascertain the truth, are those individuals that who were impacted and affected very, very directly who had to make a decision. And who were they? The Prophet ﷺ being the husband, he had to decide whether to keep her or to release her. And her father and mother, Abu Bakr as-Siddiq and Umm Ruman anha, because this was her daughter. In fact, in many cases, it wouldn't even concern the brother or the sister. Do you know? If, if the father is alive 
And if the father, as the father of the household, is ultimately responsible for his daughter, then it's the father who has to make a decision as the head of the family. Not the brother. In the presence of the father, the brother has no jurisdiction or authority over the sister. None whatsoever. Of course, I am speaking of those situations where people recognize the authority of the father. In our culture, in our religion, in our deen, this is how it is. We cherish our families. We cherish the family units. The father is held in esteem. And as subordinates, as children, we regard ourselves as inferior to our fathers, to our parents. We are subordinate to them. They brought us into this world. They cared for us. They looked after us. They provided for us. We are their flesh and blood. They showed love and care and affection to us. They protected us. They brought us up. They have a great right over us. And as part of that right, we must take their feelings into consideration, their position into consideration. Of course, it doesn't mean they are infallible. It doesn't mean that they can do no wrong. It doesn't mean that there are instances where the parents are clearly in the wrong. These are exceptions. But in general, in Islam, the father holds a great position. And we, we understand that in our culture. If there is a dispute in, in marriage, in families, then normally in our culture, what tends to happen in Islamic culture? This, is, this culture isn't just about a, a, a culture specific to any region. This is a culture of Islam. This is Muslim culture, where the father will in many ways be responsible for the daughter and the son. And people will turn to the family. And the father is not disregarded. The family is not disregarded in situations like this. The family comes into great play. So in the presence of the father, the son, the brother of the sister, the brother of a brother has no jurisdiction, no authority whatsoever. So in such cases, even the brother has no right to make inquiries and to delve in the matter if the father, as a head of the family, is handling the affair. Since the father has to make a decision, the husband has to make a decision. Or in an alternative case, if the wife has to make a decision. If the husband is guilty of infidelity, of harmful behaviour to the marriage, then it concerns a wife. The wife, by all means, can make inquiries. But for anyone else that it doesn't concern, it's haram, it's impermissible to delve in the matter, to even think about it, to eat, let alone discuss it, let alone make inquiries. Another situation where this verse would be applicable is if someone is in a position of authority, like an employer, if an employer receives some news about his employee, he has to make a decision. So, of course, they can investigate the matter, and so on. 
So only in such instances where a decision has to be made, a judgment has to be made. Someone has to decide, is it permissible, is it applicable, is this verse applicable that a person goes ahead and makes inquiries before taking action? Otherwise, if it doesn't concern a person, it's not permissible for them to delve into the matter. And then there's a great danger that they will fall into great sin, either by repeating this calumny, this gossip, this lie, or but either by way of lying against a person or harming a person. So we should be extremely careful when it comes to news, when it comes to reports. Now, we may not think much of this. This may pass over us until we are victims of such malicious gossip, of such news, of lies, of falsehood ourselves. I remember many years ago, on one occasion, there was an individual who was involved in spreading slander about others. And I know this for a fact. He was one, he was part of a group that was involved in spreading slander about others. But it wasn't, it was done in a very casual way. It's not like they, the group embarked on a campaign. It's just that they were a part of a group of people who were just extremely careless. They did not apply any Islamic principles uh, to their understanding and their perception of other people. And whatever they heard, they just repeated. And they, uh, as part of their behaviour towards certain people, they just uh, repeated every slander and malicious gossip about them. And then... About two years later, that same individual came to me weeping, actually shedding tears as an adult, a man, as a man, as a male adult. He came, he was weeping, and he pleaded with me, saying to me, why don't you speak about this topic, that people should not slander others, People should not repeat gossip. And I actually said to him, I said, I've been speaking on this topic for years. Where have you been? You only approach me now, and I say this because I was actually one of the victims of his slander. That's why I, I was a bit passionate. So I said to him, where have you been? And I said, where have you, I've been speaking about this for years. I said, where have you been? I said, I said to him, have you only come to the realisation now when you have become a victim of other people's gossip and slander? And then I reminded him of what he had said. And he confessed. And he was remorseful. But too little, too late. Because when we slander others or repeat slander, it's no good just saying sorry. The Quranic principles are very different to our common understanding. Sorry just doesn't cut it at times. 
Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in a verse, إِلَّا الَّذِينَ تَابُوا وَأَصْلَحُوا وَبَيَّنُوا فَأُولَٰئِكَ أَتُوبُوا عَلَيْهِمْ Except for those who repent, تَابُوا وَأَصْلَحُوا and who reform and make good, وَبَيَّنُوا and who clarify, these are the ones who, to whom I turn in relenting and in accepting their repentance. A person can't leave a trail of destruction in their wake by lying, gossiping, rumour-mongering, destroying people's lives, dignities, honour, and then afterwards say, I'm sorry. Who's going to repair the damage? This is why true Tawbah in Islam have always said that, and inshallah I will get around to it, although I have touched upon it, but I will dedicate a few sessions just to this, Tawbah, repentance, has many R's. Repentance has many R's. For repentance to be genuine, for repentance to be true, for repentance to be accepted by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, there have to be many R's. Repentance includes remorse, regret, reform, refraining, Resolve never to return to the sin. Repentance includes repair. All of these R's and many more are included in the concept of repentance in Islam. You can't just say sorry. You have to repair the damage. You have to make good. You have to show genuine remorse and contrition. You have to reform yourself. You have to refrain from what you are repenting from. You have to resolve never to return and to repeat to that behavior, never to repeat that behavior. Repentance has to be genuine. And that's why Allah says, Except for those who repent, and who repair, who make good, and who clarify. If you have hidden and concealed vital information, you can't just say sorry, you have to reveal it in order to repair. If you have spread falsehood, you can't just say sorry. You have to now combat the same falsehood that you were responsible for. With the same vigor, with the same passion, with the same energy that you were guilty of before. If you spread allegations against someone, if you wreck someone's dignity and honor by spreading so many lies then afterwards, you can't repair the damage by saying just sorry. And if you say, okay, I will clarify, there's no point you clarifying by just telling your friend in secret that, oh, I said this about him and it's not true. You have to repair the damage in proportion to the damage caused. Your reparations and your repair must be in proportion to your wrecking. So, we may not think much of this. This may pass over as, oh, lying, gossiping, someone comes to you, verify the truth, ascertain the truth, don't discuss it, only think good of yourselves. We may not think much of it until we become the victim of gossip, of falsehood, of slander. And when a person does, trust me, we can only take a lesson from Ummul Mu'mineen Aisha radiyallahu anha. She felt so overwhelmed, so overwhelmed, so suppressed, so helpless, that 
when she was sitting there, her father was in front of her, her mother was in front of her, and the Messenger And the Prophet asked her a question. She couldn't reply. She just turned to her father and mother and said to them, you reply to him. Father and mother said, what can we say to the Messenger of Allah? So Ummul Mu'mineen Aisha radiyallahu anha, imagine her plight. She said to them that it seems as though your hearts have contrived a belief for you and that you will believe, you have believed whatever is being said. So that if I say to you, if I say to you what you already believe, then I am merely affirming what you suspect. And if I say something to you otherwise, you will not believe me. She felt so helpless. So afterwards, she then just repeated the verse of the Holy Quran. And she said, By Allah, I do not find any example to describe my plight and my relationship with you at this moment. My situation with you at this moment. I do not find any example to describe it except what Ya'qub alayhi salam, meaning the father of Yusuf, said. And what did Ya'qub alayhi salam say to his sons? Fasabrun Jameel. Allahu musta'anu ala ma tasifun. Patience is far better. And I only seek Allah's help and assistance over what you say. So she felt so helpless. And who was standing before her? The best of creation. And then the best of creation after him. The Prophet wasallam, Abu Bakr as-Siddiq radiallahu It took Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's revelation of the verses of the Holy Quran to relieve her of her plight. That's what lying does. That's what allegations do. That's what calumny does. That's what wahdan does. That's what gossiping and rumor mongering does. And if it could happen to Ummul Mu'mineen Aisha radiallahu anha, who are you and I? So it will hit us. Trust me, wallahi, it will hit us the day we become victims of such gossip and slander. And therefore, let us do ourselves and others a favor by acting upon these principles of the Holy Qur'an, which are, O believers, when someone comes to you with any news, verify the facts, ascertain the truth, make your inquiries, lest you inflict harm upon someone without realizing, and then you become remorseful over what you have done. And even these inquiries, even this verification of the truth, even this ascertaining of the facts, is only applicable in those situations where it impacts on you directly and you have to make a decision, you have to reach a judgment. Otherwise, the other verse is applicable, which is, لَوْلَا إِذْ سَمِعْتُمُونَ Why wasn't it that when you heard this, ظَنَّ الْمُؤْمِنُونَ وَالْمُؤْمِنَاتُ بِأَنفَسِهِمْ خَيْرًا Believing men and believing women thought good of themselves and said this is a clear lie. And وَلَوْلَا إِذْ سَمِعْتُمُونَ Why wasn't it that when you heard this, قُلْتُمْ you said, مَا يَكُونُ لَنَا أَن نَتَكَلَّمَ بِهَذَا It is not permissible for us to even speak of this. Subhanak, hallowed be your name, O Allah. هَذَا بُهْتَانٌ عَظِيمٌ This is a great calumny. And there are other verses of the Holy Qur'an where Allah tells us again and again, verify the facts, ascertain the truth before you reach judgment, before you make a decision. In one verse, وَإِذَا جَاءَهُمْ أَمْرٌ مِّنَ الْأَمْنِ أَوِ الْخَوْفِ أَذَاعُوا بِهِ 
ولو ردوه إلى الرسول وإلى أولي الأمر منهم لعلمه الذين يستنبطونه منهم ولولا فضل الله عليكم ورحمته لاتبعتم الشيطان إلا قليلا Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, speaking of the society of Medina again, وَإِذَا جَاءَهُمْ أَمْرٌ مِّنَ الْأَمْنِ أَوِ الْخَوْفِ أَذَاعُوا بِهِ When any affair comes to them, when any matter comes to them, relating to security or fear, أَذَاعُوا بِهِ What do they do? They spread it, they broadcast it. Now I use the word broadcast because... In Arabic, what's the verse of the Qur'an? Meaning they spread it, they announce it. Now in modern Arabic, a radio is called midya. It means a broadcasting tool. And broadcasting services are known as idha'at, idha'a. So... So, idha'ah means broadcasting. Now, that's a verse, adha'u. That's the actual wording in the verse, adha'u. They broadcast it. Of course, this term broadcast wasn't known then as we know it technically. But what does it mean? Broadcasting means to announce it publicly, to tell everyone about it. Now, people were doing that in Medina at the time. In relation to anything, whether it's to do with fear, whether it's to do with security, meaning... Any news that would make people feel more secure. Any news which would make people feel more fearful. Anything which changes people's sense of security, for the better or for the worse. And that's important. Still, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, speaking of the people of Medina at the time, When any matter reaches them related to security or fear, what do they do? They spread it, they announce it, they broadcast it. What should they have done? If they had referred the matter to the messenger, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, وَإِلَىٰ أُولِ الْأَمْرِ مِنْهُمْ and to those of authority amongst them. Those who would have investigated the matter would have come to know of it. And if it wasn't for the bounty of Allah and His mercy on you, you would have followed the devil except in little. That means that broadcasting, spreading, repeating everything that we hear is following the devil. It's following shaitan because he achieves so many of his aims. Lying, falsehood, rumor-mongering, gossip, slander, fear, insecurity, attacks on people's dignity, honor. Islam has laid great emphasis on this. Islam has given great importance to people's honor and dignity. Today we think that, look, you can't hit another person. It's amazing. If you, if you slap another person, you're in trouble. You punch another person, you're in trouble. GBH. You're liable to be prosecuted and convicted and put away. You can't lay a finger on another person. You can't thump another person. 
let alone shed, you can't let alone kill them or shed their blood, you can't thump another person, you can't slap them, you can't smack them, you can't do anything. And rightfully so. But why do we stop there? Why do we regard a person's skin and their bones and their blood and their body as being sacred and inviolable? Why? Because it causes pain? Is that why? It leaves bruises? It leaves cuts and incisions? Is that why? What about a person's heart? What about a person's mind? What about their dignity? You may hit a person. They may feel the pain for one or two days, or a few days, a few more days if it's serious. But you attack a person's dignity. You wound their mind and injure their heart and their psyche for the rest of their life. But there's nothing against that. And it's not just one person saying it to another. Sometimes when there's a media scrum, the entire country, the entire readership and the listenership gang up on one individual making their life hell. And as I gave the example of Ummuminin Aisha radiallahu anha, I use that example to explain her plight. Imagine who she was, where she was, how she was. And even in the presence of the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wasallam and Abu Bakr as-Siddiq radiyallahu she felt utterly helpless. The only person she could turn to is Allah. And indeed, her words are normally what all, all such people feel, which is helpless. فَصَبْرٌ جَمِينٌ What can I say? The only thing I can say is patience is far better and I seek Allah's assistance and His assistance alone over what you say. As far as libel is concerned, libel is reserved for the rich. Super injunctions are reserved for the rich. The rich can gag people even before they want to say something. And after they say something, the rich can gag them and not only gag them, but seek compensation for the perceived damage. But for the rest of us, Our skins may be safe, our bodies may be safe from bruises, but our hearts, our minds, our psyche, our very inner core and being continue to suffer relentless assaults from everyone else, from each other, from those who call themselves our friends, and we think nothing of it. Because we have failed to understand, let alone implement the teachings of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Prophet was performing tawaf around the Kaaba and said, looking at the Kaaba, he said, O Kaaba, how pure are you? And how pure is your fragrance? How great are you, and how great is your sanctity. But by that Allah, in whose whose hands rests the soul of Muhammad, the sanctity of a mu'min, of a believer, is far greater with Allah than even the sanctity of the Kaaba. 
And then he explained what that sanctity is. The sanctity of the believer. The sanctity of his blood. The sanctity of his property and wealth. The sanctity of his dignity. And that only good should be thought of him. Imagine. Part of the sanctity of a believer which is greater than even the sanctity of the Kaaba is that we do not think ill of him. So in Islam, it's not just the body which is sacred and inviolable. A person's dignity, their heart, their mind, all of these are inviolable. And that means we should be extremely careful of what we think about another person, let alone say of them, let alone repeat of them. I end with this. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Ya ayyuhal ladheena amanu, in jaakum fasakum binabain fatabayyanu, an tusibu qawm bijahalatin fatusbihu ala ma fa'altum nadameen. O believers, if a sinful person comes to you with some news, then verify, lest you inflict harm on a people in ignorance, and then you become remorseful and over what you have done. I pray that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala enables us to understand. May Allah make us amongst those who observe and respect the dignity of others. And recognize the sanctity of other people's dignity. And that may Allah make us amongst those who concern ourselves with ourselves. In a hadith, Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam says, مِنْ حُسْنِ إِسْنَامِ الْمَرْءِ تَرْكُهُ مَا لَا Part of the good Islam of a person, part of a, part of a person being a good Muslim, is his shunning that which doesn't concern him. We should concern ourselves with ourselves. Life is too short. The hereafter is eternal. And that's what we need to prepare for. Why should we wreck our akhirah because of someone else's dunya? And another perfect example of that verse, وَإِذَا جَاءَهُمْ أَمْرٌ مِّنَ الْأَمْنِ أَوِ الْخَوْفِ أَذَاعُوا بِهِ Words spread in mid... It doesn't have to be about sin. It could be, it could be to do with anything. Word spread in Medina that the Prophet ﷺ had divorced all of his wives. Word spread. Umar ibn al-Khattab came to the masjid. There in the masjid he saw the sahaba, he saw not all of them, but he saw a number of sahaba عنهم, sitting in the masjid. Some of them weeping, with many of them with their heads in their bosoms. All in great shock and grief because they had heard that the Prophet ﷺ had divorced his wives. All of his wives. So Umar ibn al-Khattab sought permission from Rasulullah ﷺ to enter. At first he was refused permission. So the, the doorman was sitting there. Umar came, sought permission. He was declined. He went sat down, rose again after a while, came, sought permission, he was declined, he went back, came back after a while, he persisted. Eventually he was granted permission. He came inside. One of the first things he said to the Messenger Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, O Messenger of Allah, have you divorced your wives? 
Prophet said, no, I haven't. So he came out and he announced to the public, know that the messenger has not divorced his wives. And then he said, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, when a matter comes to them, relating to security or fear, they broadcast it. And if they had referred the matter to the messenger and the people of authority amongst them, those who would have excavated, investigated the matter would have come to realize its truth. So he said, I was the one who excavated the truth of the matter because I made the necessary and relevant inquiries. And why did he make the inquiry? Because he was a father-in-law. And of course, this concerned the Sahaba because it grieved them, it hurt them. But even in that, Umar did the right thing, which is he went and asked the Prophet So even, it doesn't have to be related to sin or something salacious or gossipy or something sinful. Even normal things. We so casually repeat things. And we end up lying about people. I remember my father related a very humorous story to us. This is even about marriage and divorce. One of my father's friends was a scholar. Well, I won't relate this, but... Even about simple things relating to marriage and divorce. Word spreads. And... Allahu Akbar. People are even approached. I've heard you divorced. No, who told you? (laughs) I've heard you married. No, who told you? I heard you've got four wives. I wish. (laughs) I heard this. I heard that. Inna lillahi wa inna ilayhi raji'un. So Umar did the right thing, which is he went and made the necessary inquiries. And it concerned him directly because his daughter was one of the wives of the Prophet Even about simple things, it doesn't have to be sinful. Even simple, normal, everyday things. We should be careful about what we say. And we shouldn't be like those that Allah says, whenever something comes to them, they broadcast it. And as the Prophet said, it is sufficient for a person to be a liar that he repeats everything he says. I pray that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala enables us to understand sallallahu wa sallam ala abdihi wa rasooli nabiyyina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in subhanakallahum wa bihamdik nashadu wa la ilaha illa and nastaghfiruka wa natubu ilayk.